0: And please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, today we continue our sermon series, the New Testament book of Ephesians. And we're going to be looking at uh, one sentence in our English translation. And this this one sentence begins with the last two words of verse 4. Those two words are in love. And it continues through the end of verse 6. And you'll see in these two verses, this one sentence in the English translation, you'll see two very significant words predestined and adoption. In the previous two sermons, we focused our time and our attention on the doctrines of election, the doctrine of predestination, and therefore today we'll place the emphasis on adoption, on spiritual adoption. And so if that word predestination, raises questions in your mind or even concerns. You know, I I refer you back to the the most recent two sermons. Please go back, listen to those, watch those. But today we're going to be talking about the doctrine of adoption. I think you'll find that that there's more than enough here for for one sermon. And while we're looking at the end of verse 4 through verse 6, I want to remind you that while we're in this really magnificent section of Ephesians 1, verse 3 to verse 14... Each week, I'm going to read all of that section, from verse 3 to verse 14. It's one long sentence in the original Greek text, one long sentence of over 200 words. And I'm going to read that whole, that whole section, even though we're only going to preach through just you know, two verses of it, because I want us, to, on the one hand, to see the, the theology and the doxology in each of these verses, but I also don't want us to miss or lose sight of the, the larger context in this magnificent section from verse 3 to verse 14. So here now, God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, life-giving word. i begin reading Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're looking at these two verses from the end of verse 4 through the end of verse 6. And we're going to look at them under four headings, four questions. Four questions that I I believe or that I hope are following the the logic of these two verses. And so first, we're going to ask, what has God done? What has God done? Second, how did he do it? Third, why did he do it? And then the fourth question is, how is all of this possible? So what has God done? How did he do it? Why did he do it? How is this all possible? So first, what has God done? And so look with me at the end of verse 4, in the beginning phrase of verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. In our short study of Ephesians, only five verses in, we've already learned a lot of things about Christians. We have lots of ways to describe what a Christian is. Just from the greeting in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1, we've already learned that a Christian is a saint, a saint set apart by and for God. We've already learned that a Christian is a believer, a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We've already learned that a Christian has been chosen by God for salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world. We've already learned that a Christian has been predestined for salvation in love. And here today, we're reminded that a Christian is an adopted child of God. So look again at these verses. End of verse 4, beginning of verse 5. In love, God the Father predestined us before the foundation of the world. Before we were born. Before we loved Jesus, God the Father loved us. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And any time I... I I read a passage that that speaks about our spiritual adoption, or I'm getting ready to teach or preach on this doctrine of adoption. I can't help but think about a quote from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And I can't remember the first time I read it. It It was many years ago, but here's what the quote says. What is a Christian? The answer can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Therefore, let us try to understand our spiritual adoption into God's family. And so look again at end of verse four, beginning of verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. As sons. Doesn't say as children. So ladies, yes, you have been adopted by God as sons. So the Bible says, but men, yes, you have been made the bride of Christ. So let us all get comfortable with the Bible's language for us. That we are all adopted as sons, all of us who are in Christ are the brides of Christ. But ladies, verse 5's language, adoption to himself as sons, it says something truly remarkable, truly remarkable, about your full standing in Christ. So let me try to explain this. You see, verse 5 does not mean that, that it's wrong, okay, to speak of Christians as being sons and daughters in God's family. That's not wrong. Ladies, you are indeed daughters of our heavenly Father. You are daughters. However, Paul is intentional with his language, adoption to himself as sons, because it teaches us something very significant, something we don't want to lose, and something that, that, that we don't want to miss about our spiritual adoption into God's family. You see, adoption was, was, was not at all uncommon in the first century Roman world. However, it was a practice that was often only used by wealthy people, wealthy individuals, wealthy couples who did not have any biological children to serve as their heir or to carry on their family name. And this is where adoption as sons comes in because daughters did not inherit in the first century Roman world. They weren't heirs. They weren't full heirs. Therefore, Paul writes that in respect to our spiritual adoption in Christ, All believers, men and women, all believers, men and women are sons, are heirs. Men and women all receive a full share in the inheritance of our Heavenly Father. So do you see that Paul, he's not a male chauvinist at all. He says, in Christ, there are no second-class citizens. He says that while the the pagan, unbelieving, non-Christian world out there may, may treat women as less than full heirs, as second-class citizens, that is not the case within God's family. That should not be the case within the church, that men and women, boys and girls, are adopted as sons, and therefore are full heirs in Christ. You see, our spiritual adoption means that we, it means that you, dear Christian, have a new status in Christ. So I'm going to keep reminding you of this. See, Roman adoption in the first century was a practice that was often only for wealthy people who didn't have biological children to serve as their heir to carry on their family name. And these wealthy individuals, couples, would most often choose to adopt a young adult. Not to adopt, adopt an infant, but to adopt a young adult because remember, remember what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who had demonstrated that they would be worthy They would be responsible. They would be worthy to inherit the family estate. They would be worthy to carry on the family name. And therefore, adoption was serious business. It involved a serious and thorough legal process, which resulted in a radical and thorough change in one's legal status. That the one who was adopted had all of their past debts, all of their past obligations canceled, wiped out. And all the old family ties and all the old allegiances were severed. The newly adopted heir had a new status, had a new family, has a new father, has a new name. He has a new status. And this is true for you, dear Christian. Do you realize this? That all of your sin debt has been canceled. It's been wiped out. It's been washed away. It's been fully forgiven in Christ. And Praise God. And all of your old allegiances have been severed. That the old man, the old woman, the old person's dead, buried, gone. The new has come. You've been raised to new life. You've been given a new heart to walk in newness of life. That you are now an adopted heir of God the Father. With a new status. Clothed in Christ's righteousness which has been imputed to you. So a new status. You have a new heavenly Father. You have a new family, the local church. You have a new name, the name Christian. You have been chosen by God. You've been adopted into his family. You are his child. You are his child. And I fear that, that, that either we don't believe this, we don't know it, or we're, we're just not particularly impressed by it. We should be. We, we must be. I mean, if only we would live out of this new status. If only we would press into this and, and live out of it as adopted and beloved sons and daughters of God. You see, all of this is who you are now in Christ. That you are no longer who you once were. You don't have to live like you once lived any longer. You really do have a new status And a new heart, and a new father, and a new family, and a new name. And God has given you the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to empower you, to enable you to walk in newness of life. To to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ. And this is what Paul is going to tell us about in Ephesians 4 whenever we get there. Look back at Ephesians 1, verse 4 and verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So there's a new status. And along with this new status, there's also new privileges. New status and new privileges. And one of the places where where both are summarized, our new status and our new privileges, is is a place where, where many of us, would, uh, would not think to look. And, and it's found in, in really in, in, in one paragraph, one paragraph that makes up one whole chapter of this document. And this chapter is titled, Of Adoption. And this chapter is chapter 12. And the document is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's Just one paragraph that makes up one chapter. It's titled, Of Adoption. And many of us would never think to look there, I think in part because if we've heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we may think, ah, theology, doctrine, cold, dead, yikes, that's for pastors, that's for seminarians and professors, that's not for me. But we're going to look at it, we're going to read this whole chapter, which is just one paragraph. And I want you to listen to how, how pastoral it is, how devotional it is how helpful it is. You listen to this. If it's not helpful, come and see me. Come and see me after the service. You can tell me you don't like it, but I bet you, you're not only going to like it, you're going to love it. Listen to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12. All those who are justified, God graciously guarantees to make partakers of the grace of adoption in and for his only son, Jesus Christ. By this act, they are taken into the number of God's children and enjoy the liberties and privileges of that relationship. They are given his name. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And like a father, God has compassion on, protects, provides for, and chastens them. Yet they will never be cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption and will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Amen. Look again at verse 4 and verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. You see, dear Christian, yes, you have been forgiven of your sins. Your sin debt has been completely paid, canceled wiped out, washed away. And this is wonderful news, praise God. But that is not the fullness of the gospel. That's not the fullness of the gospel's good news that your sins have been forgiven. You've also been adopted into God's family. You really do have a new status, a new family, a new father, a new name, new privileges that in love he predestined you for adoption to himself. You really do have a real relationship with God as your father. And He loves you. Okay, He doesn't just love us together. He loves you. He loves you as your Heavenly Father. If only we believed that. And it impacted the way we live and the way we prayed. And the way we, we read the Bible in the way we listen to the Bible read and listened to the Bible preached, in the way we worshipped. Listen to how uh, Pastor Richard Cokin puts it. We therefore enjoy the tender love of our Heavenly Father, carefully providing our daily needs, pardoning our sins, protecting us from unhelpful harm, disciplining us in the way we should go, and showering us with undeserved kindnesses. We enjoy our heavenly father's constant attention to our prayers, for he's never sleepy or forgetful, never grumpy or uninterested, never powerless to help or unsure of what to do. Indeed, in Christ, we are brought right into the family of the triune God himself, able to whisper in the ear of our father. So do do you believe this? Do you believe all of this i mean you should because it's true but but do we believe this i mean how would our lives change if we really believe this if we really live this out i mean how would your life change if if you lived trusting that you were chosen adopted loved by your heavenly father How would your life change if you lived trusting that your heavenly father daily provided for your needs and graciously disciplined you as his child in the way you should go as you more and more died unto sin and more and more lived unto righteousness? I mean, how would your prayer life change and grow and mature and deepen if you lived trusting and believing that your heavenly father was always attentive to your prayers? Never asleep, never forgetful, never grumpy, never too busy, never uninterested, never unavailable. If you trusted and believed, you were able, even invited, to whisper in the ear of your Heavenly Father. I mean, what difference would that make in the way that we prayed, in the way that we read the Word, the way that we heard it preached, the way that we worshiped? What has God done? adopted us as sons the second question is well how did he do it so look again at verse four and then we'll expand verse five a little bit in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ we're going to focus on through Jesus Christ and so yet again we see the doctrine of union with Christ which we're going to see over and over again So let me remind us that Roman adoption in the first century was often a practice only for wealthy people who didn't have any biological children to serve as their heir, carry on their family name. So they're looking for right, young adults, not infants, but young adults who were worthy to carry on their family name, to inherit their family estate, worthy individuals to adopt. We think about our spiritual adoption and we think, well, that's not us. That we that we were not worthy to be adopted into God's family, and that's that's exactly right. You see, often sermons on adoption, in sermons on adoption, the pastor will tell uh, at least one adoption story, often a a heart stir, stirring adoption story about adopted parents. Uh, the great lengths that they would go to because they loved their children, these these adopted children so much and it was such a struggle to to adopt these children. The children had such great needs and so they were going over these great, they made all these great sacrifices and went this great distance to do that. And amazing stories, wonderful stories, stories I love to hear about. But when we think about our spiritual adoption by our Heavenly Father, what is most amazing is that we were not worthy of adoption into God's family. And yet, in love, he predestined us to be adopted to himself as sons. However, Jesus was and is worthy, and it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our elder brother, that sinners like us are made adopted sons of God. And so think about this. Think about the work of our elder brother, the work of our covenant head. Think about this union with Christ And Pastor Ian Hamilton helps us think well. He says, God's salvation in Christ has a familial shape. Adoption has been called the apex of God's blessings to us in Christ. In our union with Adam, our first head, we fell into sin and became children of wrath, which we'll get to in Ephesians 2. In union with Christ, our second ultimate head, we are brought into the consummate heights of sonship to God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God in our flesh, Because of God's predestined purpose through Jesus Christ, we have received adoption as sons. Jesus has brothered us in the gospel. He has done this first by becoming one with us in his incarnation, taking on flesh. Then, as our representative covenant head who died in our place on the cross, bearing God's just condemnation on our sin and rising for our justification. Okay, so put another way, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became like us. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became like us. He took on flesh in order to fully accomplish our redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became like us so that we might become like him. Sons of God. And our adoption is through Jesus Christ as we've been reading about in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. So look again at verse 4, and then we'll add in all of 5 and part of 6. What has God done? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How did God do it? Through Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our covenant head. Well, why did he do it? Look at the next two phrases. According to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. We're going to consider those two in turn. So, first, according to the purpose of his will. That word translated purpose literally means good pleasure in the original Greek text. God's good pleasure, God's kind intention. So, why did God predestine you in love to salvation and adoption into his family through Jesus Christ? It was according to his good pleasure, it pleased God. To love you and to adopt you into his family. It pleased God to adopt you. Do you believe that? That he didn't do it begrudgingly. It pleased him. Why did God predestine you in love to salvation and adoption into his family through Jesus Christ? Here's the very best answer the Bible gives you. According to the purpose or the good pleasure of his will. Listen to how RC Sproul explains this. This is the only reason to be found in scripture that explains why God elects people for salvation. The reason for election is not my foreseen righteousness. It's not my foreseen anything. Right? It's not that God looks down through the corridors of time and he sees, okay, who's going to be righteous? Who's going to be moral? Who's going to be spiritual? Who is going to be religious? Who's going to be worthy? Who's going to make a choice? Who's going to make a decision? It's not because of, of, of my foreseen, of your foreseen anything. The reason for election is not my foreseen righteousness or my foreseen obedience or my foreseen response to the gospel. In other words, God did not choose us because we qualified for the choice. Rather, he chose us because he was pleased to extend mercy to us. And as we move through the rest of Ephesians, we're going to see that Paul never grows tired of reminding us over and over and over again that our election to salvation in Christ is the result of God's sovereign good pleasure and purpose. And so look again at the end of verse 4, verse 5, and the beginning of verse 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why did God do it first? According to the purpose of his will. Second, to the praise of his glorious grace. And his grace is glorious because everything about God is glorious. His wisdom is glorious, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, all glorious, and so is his grace. Right? God's grace is glorious indeed. God's grace is calls for doxology. It's a calls for praise. It's a cause for worship. It's a cause for celebration. So, put another way, a right understanding of the doctrines of election and predestination will highlight, will will double click on, will emphasize God's immeasurably and wholly undeserved grace. His immeasurably and wholly undeserved grace for sinners like us. And this cannot and must not fall short of praise, of our praise to his glorious grace. And so, look again. Look again at these verses, verse four and verse five, the beginning of verse six. Look at those verses. You see, I've been asked in recent weeks, okay, Richard, I can tell election and predestination are big deals. This is important. But I don't understand why it's important. Why is it such a big deal? I've been asked that question. But then I've also heard this. The last two sermons have given me an assurance of salvation that I did not have before you know I can tell this is important why is it important oh my goodness I've never had an assurance of salvation like I do now because of learning about these things and my response to both of these categories of comments and questions is yes Praise God, that's exactly what's supposed to be happening as we're thinking about and learning about and considering these important truths and these important doctrines. I think praise God that he's moving and working through his spirit, through his word, in our hearts and our minds. And our minds and our hearts are being challenged challenged to, to believe and to trust what the Bible says and not just what we want the Bible to say, and, and that we're being comforted by these amazing truths because that's exactly what's supposed to happen. But right? As we learn more and more about God's sovereignty and his grace and his good pleasure that elects us, that predestines us to adoption in himself, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, it is supposed to make our hearts sing and provide us such comfort. As one pastor put it, the doctrine of predestination is meant to bless believers' hearts. It's not meant for endless argument. It's not an excuse not to evangelize. It's our basis of comfort. It's our basis of comfort when we're wrestling with our sin and the world's trials. To such, God says, I loved you before the world began, so don't doubt me now. Predestination is the Heavenly Father's shout of eternal love that echoes in our songs of thankful praise as our strength is renewed by the assurance of his care. When predestination is properly taught, it accomplishes what Paul says is his goal. Praise to God for his glorious grace. And so look again at our passage. Look again at the end of verse 4, verse 5, and all of verse 6. What has God done? In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How did he do it? Through Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our covenant head. Why did he do it? According to the purpose of his will. According to his good pleasure. To the praise of his glorious grace. Well, here's our last question. How is all of this possible? You see the last phrase. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now that word translated blessed is the verb form of the Greek noun for grace. Therefore, verse 6 contains a play on words, using the noun form and the verb form for grace. So if you look at verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, the noun form, his glorious grace, with which he has blessed, or that's the verb form of grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed, be graced us, or the verb form, or blessed us with grace in the beloved. So you see the doctrines of election and predestination, they emphasize and they magnify God's grace in our salvation. It emphasizes and magnifies a salvation that is by the grace of God from beginning to end, by grace from first to last. And then this final phrase, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, it's a restatement and a, an expansion, a rephrasing of what Paul's already said. It's a, it's a restatement and a rephrasing of through Jesus Christ, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, the beloved is Jesus. So here's what I mean. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the beloved Son of God, the beloved, became like us. He took on flesh in order to fully accomplish our redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Beloved, became like us so that we might become like him, sons of God. And our adoption is through Jesus Christ, the Beloved. As John Calvin puts it, he names Christ the Beloved to tell us that by him, by Christ, the love of God is poured out to us. It's through our union with Christ, the beloved Son of God, that sinners like us become adopted sons who are also dearly loved by God the Father. And so OK, Richard, what does this mean? Here's what it means. Do you really believe that God loves you? Not, do you know the Sunday school answer. Do you really believe that God loves you? Not loves us in general. Do you really believe God loves you? Do you really? You should, but do you really believe that? You see, I worry that not all of us in this sanctuary believe that God really loves us. I worry we think something like this. Okay, Richard, sure, God loves her. Yes, God loves him, I mean, look at them. Look at, the, look, 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 at how, look at how gifted they are, how talented they are. Look at how good they are. Look at how good they are. Look at, look, look at their kids. Look at their family. Look, look at how they have everything all together. Look at them. Yes, God loves her. God loves him. But Richard, I'm not so sure that he really loves me. See, I fear that many of us think that way. So keep that in mind. It's not true, but I I fear that many of us think that. However, I don't think that any one of us in this sanctuary who professes faith in Christ has any doubt whatsoever that God the Father's love for God the Son. I think every single one of us in this sanctuary who professes faith in Christ believes 100% that God the Father loves God the Son. And yet we don't all believe that God the Father loves us. And that's the point that Paul's making in verse six. Do you understand that? That's the very point he's making. See, look, look at verse four to verse six again. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, Jesus is the beloved son of God and we are in Christ, which means that we who are in Christ are no less loved by God the Father than Jesus the Son. Let me say that again. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and we are in Christ, which means that we who are in Christ are no less loved by God the Father than Jesus the Son. And if only we would believe that. Understand this doctrine of union with Christ So let me share one last quote from Ian Hamilton. He says, It's not surprising that Paul once again reminds us that this grace of adoption has come to us in the beloved. Our union with Christ in the beloved. During the son's life on earth, the father split the heavens to speak of and speak to him. This is my beloved son. Because Christ is the beloved son, everyone in him is no less God's beloved son. He is the beloved son from eternity. We are the beloved sons from time. Made sons, not by any merit in us, but solely by the glory of his grace. What a gospel. What a God. Right? What, what love. I mean, look again. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you see this sentence is all about the love of God? It begins with in love and it ends with the beloved. It begins with in love and it ends with reminding us that we have been blessed, we have been graced, we have been be graced, we have been loved in the beloved. We have been and we are dearly loved in God's beloved Son. I said it last week and I'll say it again this morning love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all amen let's pray father we thank you for your word and for these these precious doctrines of election predestination of spiritual adoption Lord, please help our minds to to begin to grasp more and more of your love for us in Christ, your grace for us in Christ. Lord, please write these eternal truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.